Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Social isolation and loneliness are an indication of the number of social supports and the perceived quality of those connections. In the previous episode, we highlighted some important distinctions between the concepts of social isolation and loneliness with our guest, Dr. Mareta Germay, a public health analyst based in the United States. She remains with us in this episode to transition our conversation as we take a closer look at how social isolation and loneliness impact health outcomes, their disproportionate impact on the senior population, and the need for a creative systems thinking approach. This is where we left off in our conversation. Loneliness, as we've discussed, um, can be considered a social determinant of health and for public health, for better or for worse, um, it is often deeply entangled with, you know, politics. And in the political realm, the policymakers and decision makers often want kind of a economic justification in order to move policies forward. So what are some of those, if you can speak to it, more tangible economic impacts of, you know, this so-called uh, epidemic of loneliness? I know from one study that I've seen, it's estimated that specifically social isolation among older adults costed the Medicare system in the United States, I think it was in 2016, $6.7 billion. So, and I've heard from various podcasts I've listened to with um, clinicians talking about their experience with older patients. Um, they say a lot of times when they get doctor's visits, um, people come in just because they feel alone and they have no one to talk to. So, you know, it's putting the onus on a lot of times healthcare providers as the kind of the go-to person in a sense, when maybe there's public health interventions that can kind of address it without kind of uh, putting that burden on healthcare specific. Because loneliness, while healthcare practitioners are allies in this, um, the burden shouldn't, shouldn't lie solely with them to address the problem. Yeah, I certainly agree. You know, social connections, um, I think now, again, with everything that's sort of happening, we um, were able to see, you know, the significant effect that it's having on health, right? So, and I believe that the field, I'm confident that the field of public health, like you said, not just placing the burden on, you know, physicians or providers, they'll continue to embrace the need for like more of a SEOH social determinants of health focused solutions. But I think to address it, to be honest, it's going to require, I mean, at least what I believe a multi-pronged approach, right? And one that requires, mm -hmm. yeah, an all hands on deck approach, really. Um, I think it's going to take some creativity, um, you know, thinking outside of the box and utilizing um, support groups, like you said, not even just within the healthcare system, but these support groups and therapy, counseling services, um, you know, in, in ways that meet people where they are. So as we consider, you know, how socioeconomic status plays a part, um, living standards, barriers to access to treatment and care, um, you know, not everyone's going to reach out for services if they're feeling socially isolated or lonely. So if these services are in place and, um, and offered, you know, perhaps with um, reduced right. fees or even free of charge, you know, people will be more inclined, obviously, mm -hmm. to utilize, you know, these services. So, I mean, it's important for everyone, just like you mentioned, um, you know, 
that everyone is is um, dedicated to um, remaining cognizant of how you know how important of an issue this is, and then also as we've shifted to more virtual telehealth forums, you know how that plays a part in the digital divide. You know, I just want to make sure right. that you know, yeah, because there is a, there's a true digital divide that's there, and what that doesn't that doesn't only mean access to broadband internet, right? It means also the utilization because um, you know for if we reference again the senior population. Um, even if they have the access to the internet and they have a laptop or a desktop, sometimes the utilization and the frequency, you know, mm. of, you know, of usage also right, plays right, a part. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's going to. Right. And I, that's one thing I hope to touch on um, a okay. little bit more a little yeah. later in yeah. the, our solutions. But I want to um, piggyback on that point that you made about community services yeah. to provide social networks to people. Yeah. But in, in the context of, you know, COVID-19, to prevent the spread of the disease, um, a lot of these public health measures that were put in place to protect the, you know, the overall health of the population, also meant that a lot of these programs and services that people rely on in the community um, were no longer being offered uh, outright, or you know, mm-hmm. the capacity was limited, and then the populations in which they were meant to be serving, um, you know, that connection was broken by all these various measures that were implemented. So I want to talk a little bit more about in the current situation that we're in with COVID-19. COVID-19 specifically um, poses such a great health risk to you know older adults and seniors that we've been talking about in this episode. So it's like people are listening. The immediate effect of COVID-19 means like a lot of people get hospitalized and all those horrible symptoms and a lot of people do die, especially seniors. But why should we still care about loneliness in the context of COVID-19? I think it's especially important now. I think if we didn't value social connection before, we certainly do now. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think, you know, many of us took for granted, um, you know, just going out and having a coffee with a friend and sitting, you know, in a coffee shop, a local coffee shop and just, you know, sharing positive energy, you know, amongst each other. And, you know, if you're going to church, wherever you're you know, your place of worship is, I think a lot of those things, many of us may have taken for granted. And so it's, oh, it's so important right now um, that we understand first, as we've mentioned, the difference between the two, social isolation and loneliness, but also its connection with what we're dealing with. And, um, and what the, you know, at least for me, you know, what the implications can be. And so if, um, if we're not aware and if we don't know what the differences are and what they can look like from person to person, we run the risk of missing the mark. We run the risk of overlooking people that may be dealing with these issues. And so, you know, it's, it's, again, it's important that we remain aware of what, you know, the physical health um, outcomes can be from social isola- isolation and loneliness, but also the mental health. And so it's important for everyone to be aware. I think it's not only like you mentioned earlier, um, it's not just for the healthcare providers, but community workers, because again, community-based mental health professionals, they're key segments of the mental health workforce, you know? Um, and so right. it's important that, you know, they have a seat at the table as well and that they are um, informed about what people are actually dealing with in order to meet the needs of the population. So I think the point that you mentioned earlier and one, the one that you've just um, kind of reiterated, the idea of moving beyond the healthcare system and having an as a multi-sectoral approach to loneliness and social isolation that really resonated with myself because I think one of the strategies for tackling this issue is the involvement of, let's say, your employers and just the workplace is having loneliness and social isolation 
as part of the discussion in the workplace. I think that's a very key part of this discussion because oftentimes, you know, when in the workplace, when we when we talk about um, you know things like work leave or sick leave, things like that, it's often for very much I guess physical pain or a noticeable injury or things like that. But it's only I think been recently mental health is coming in the discussion. And I think another big part of this would be this um, this discussion around social isolation and how can employers support their employees you know, in the workplace to be able to provide necessary resources or services to help deal with this as well. And I think in the COVID-19 context, especially for older adults, I think it's very important that social isolation and loneliness is also considered because like you mentioned, mm. even just coping with what's going on, on around the world. And when you're hearing in the news about the number of deaths, the number of cases jumping each and every day, there really needs to be a, some sort of system to help individuals or communities band together and support one another during a crisis like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think what we've been dealing with, it's, a, you know, being under lockdown orders for you know, an indefinite amount of time has been, you know, certainly challenging for for many people. So I suspect, you know, many health, many mental health uh, ramifications of isolation. So yeah, absolutely. Everything you said is very much true. And, and hopefully, you know, workplaces um, will support that. And I'm sure they will. I'm confident that they will. Yeah. And the two, I would say the two even go together because a lot of, um, you know, seniors who are retired do a lot of community work in those very programs and services that we're talking about. Yeah. And we know that feeling a sense of purpose in your life can also protect against loneliness and uh, social isolation. So when, um, you know, there's a lot of peer support programs that um, maybe before the pandemic, they, they were, you know, in person, you know, there wasn't as much of a focus on remote or virtual services. And now that it's been disrupted by the lockdown measures, so you have the, you know, the clients that were meant to be served um, who benefit from these services and then the people who are volunteering their time, which is in a lot of cases are those very seniors that are at, you know, higher risk for COVID-19 and that often experience uh, loneliness. Those people that are providing the services um, are also affected by the disruption because they value the input that they can put in the community. And it goes to Will's point then, these people also need to be supported not only the clients, but they need to be supported in um, whatever mental health issues that they're experiencing as well. Will, you raised a good point, though, in terms of how, I guess, our kind of corporate growing culture, we don't really talk about feeling lonely. It's kind of stigmatized. So perhaps a positive of COVID-19 is, you know, when we do emerge from this, that there'll be more openness to talking about feeling isolated, feeling lonely, and because we know the impact of it. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm always an advocate for talking about emotional feeling things that sometimes is, seems, you know, it's not mm -hmm. professional, but like after this pandemic, I think hopefully there will be a change. Yeah. And something that I've felt is that, especially in the corporate environment, it's often about productivity, you know, how, who can do more in guess, less time and pretty competitive environment sometimes you know when you have to kind of um, meet deadlines and things like that and it's definitely um, almost like a breeding ground for say social isolation or even feelings of loneliness when you when you don't when you feel like instead of a team it's more of competitors that you're with obviously this is very much um, 
specific for depending on the the work environment but i think it's seems to be something that i've definitely experienced and that people that i who i know um have experienced as well yeah that's a good point too because if you think about it um work when you're working remotely from home i'm sure there's people in your workplace you know there's a few of them that you value you know the connection when you go to work right i know me personally i have a couple you know colleagues there that i get along with very well and you know when i if you see them looking down you kind of you look a little off today but with remote work you get the the zoom and a camera set up it's a 30 minute hour meeting and everyone's gone and no one really knows (laughs) okay is will being is will being overworked um i haven't really seen him in, in four months um you know, you you assume that, oh, yeah, but you're at home so you can, you know, you can talk to your friends and stuff. But we also have a lot of social connections in work. Yeah. Um, work. We spend a lot of time before this. We spent, you know, a lot of our waking hours at work. And even though we're working from home, we're still spending a lot of our waking hours doing um, what we're getting paid to do. And a lot of times, um, a lot of th- those people that can help you throughout the day are your coworkers, and we're not really getting those connections working from home as much as, as we did before. I agree with everything that y'all are saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, again, I don't know if we valued the, um, the beauty of going into work as much as we, what we should right. have, <laughs> you know, we appreciated, <laughs> we appreciated those telework days. And then I think for many people, you know, like you said, you just don't know now because our meetings are, you know, typically, like you said, 30 minutes to an hour, and um, you just don't know what people are are dealing with. No one's, you know, through a camera going right. to share, unless you have a, not a person yes. outside of the workplace where you talk on the phone or you text, you know, if you don't have that in place, then you'll never know what people are really dealing with. So that's that's a very good point. It's like, you know, if you go on the Zoom call with your boss or, you know, you have a group call and there's, oh, how's everyone doing? Are you really going to say I'm not doing <laughs> yeah. that? I don't, I'm not. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> No, but that mm. that that's true though. But it's like I would also say the person asking the question doesn't necessarily want to hear yeah. I'm mm-hmm. anything other than oh it's good. So knowing that you don't really want to say I'm not doing well today, you know what I mean. So I think it also goes back to what Will says is like the workplace culture in of itself. If our workplaces kind of push the message, okay, if you don't feel this, please let us know. We know it's then acceptable then to say. And we won't be stigmatized for it as what you were saying, Linda, before. But why not? Why don't we normalize that, you know? Yes, loneliness policy, (laughs) which which leads me to, which leads us nicely, very nicely into our segue into, we talked about all the things that are wrong in the world. Just kidding. We just talked about, (laughs) you know, how seriously um, we should take the issue of loneliness Mm -hmm. and and how loneliness can influence our mental health and well-being. Um, but being public health professionals, being the pr- public health professionals that we are, we also have to get into what kind of things can be done to prevent or address kind of this inevitability of social isolation and loneliness. And I want to start with, first and foremost, what is kind of the role of, um, at the basic level, what is the role of health promotion in raising awareness and skill building in terms of loneliness and social isolation? Well, that's an excellent question. I think first and foremost, it's doing what we're doing now. I think um, highlighting the differences between social isolation and loneliness, also understanding their connection, their impact, um, and how it can affect um, different populations, different demographics, and the extent to which it can affect. Um, 
And like we've also highlighted, you know, the physical health outcomes related to social isolation and loneliness, the mental health outcomes. Um, and, you know, everything that we've been talking about has just, for me, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, we have just on a personal level, um, as Linda's been mentioning, we have the ability to sort of allow that to be reflected in our professional lives as well, right? So if you are someone that is empathetic um, and you know someone might be dealing with something, um, as we've been discussing, maybe at work, you're just sensing, even if it's a, during that 30-minute Zoom call, you just sense something, you know, may, perhaps mm -hmm. maybe a miss and your personality change, um, it's okay to reach out. We have options, you know, through social networks, talking on the phone, sending an email, you know, all of these things can produce positive health outcomes relative to mental health, you know, so we have those options. And I think, you know, in conjunction with what we've mentioned around the workplace supporting um, mental health days, or um, just sort of taking a breather and stepping away from work, you know, we've, mm -hmm. I think we've thought, or many people think that, um, you know, as you're teleworking, there might be less work. And I guess, I'm not too sure that's true. I think that, you know, actually, during this time of transition, um, through everything being virtual, there's still the same amount of work, mm -hmm. if not more. And so, you know, if you see something is off, you know, with a colleague or a friend, it's okay to reach out and, and say, you know, I'm here. Just offering a listening ear can, can certainly go far. But I think from the public health practitioner standpoint, it's certainly important that, um, you know, again, they are aware of the differences and how it can manifest itself depending on the other, um, I guess, compounding issues that may play a part. So, again, we, we sort of touched on digital divide earlier, right? For people that are socially isolated or feeling lonely right now, um, and they're also having the issue of maybe mm -hmm. a lack of internet access, or if they do have the internet, like you mentioned, the utilization, it may be, they may not be as well versed with, you know, user, utilizing social mm -hmm. media or staying connected through email. And so, you know, it's sort of meeting people where they are and understanding that we do have differences and that's okay. Um, but it's, it's going to be important that we that have a little bit more knowledge as it relates to social isolation and loneliness, then we, we go out and we inform um, you know, the public, be it through, you know, like we're doing now through a podcast or um, social media, other platforms, whatever it is to let people know that, you know, we see you, you're valued, you're heard, and, um, you know, this is what's in place, promoting those efforts that may be in place or that need to be implemented to meet their needs. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that we can even see within the, the, the context of this pandemic and in terms of promoting social connection as public health messaging was the initial kind of situation with the term social distancing and physical distancing. So initially, the term social distancing, at least in Canada, was used pretty often to kind of indicate that you should stay two meters away or six feet apart from people as a means to limit the transmission of COVID-19. But um, I think it may have been misinterpreted at some point to mean, you know what, you, you can't see people, you can't talk to people, and you can't stay connected with people anymore. So I think it's important um, in terms of health communication that when we're broadcasting these terms and we're telling people to do things, we need to be clear as to what are the implications that could come if you use a term like social distancing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, many you know have taken the uh, physical social distancing mandate to also mean socially distancing, you know, yeah. emotionally, personally, when in fact we should be attempting to be more socially connected, right? And so mm -hmm. we know how that can help with um, feelings around stress, fear, anxiety you know, et cetera. So again, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it's, it's just 
important that everyone realizes that we are dealing um, with very challenging times and um, it's okay to sort of overextend yourself at times if you feel that you're okay enough to do so. And it's also perfectly okay to recognize if you're not okay to do that and you want someone to reach out to you. So it's, it's really, uh, in, in essence, figuring out where you stand and, you know, pouring from a full cup, essentially. Yeah, LaShawn, I'm glad you brought up the point of social distancing because we know that that term has been used in previous uh, epidemics in the sense of H1N1. So I feel like it was very much in the sense of public health messaging. Let's use this term and we're going to use it for COVID-19. Oh no, COVID-19 turned out to be a lot worse than we thought it would ever be. Now we have to evolve this term into more physical distancing. And it's unfortunate because we know that the older population is at risk more so than others. That And they're also at risk of, so, of loneliness and isolation that the two came together as a perfect storm in order to worsen these outcomes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just to put a ribbon on that as well. When all these messages, you know, whether it's physically this physical distancing or social distancing, it it in a, I don't know if it's an implicit kind of thing where it normalizes um, experiences of loneliness. It's like okay, since you're not allowed to see your family who may live in the same city as you, maybe you're not, you know, if you're a grandparent, you can't see your children or your grandchildren. Um, you're supposed to feel lonely because that's just the situation we're in. And that goes back to what Linda mentioned earlier about the stigma. So you can, you can, you know, follow these public health recommendations to stay at home and go out for essential trips only and stuff like that. But that we should make it clear that that doesn't make it okay if you feel lonely and that you should be reaching out if that's the case. So one of those tools that we can use to reach out to people um, is, as we know, social media and other kind of technology. You know, people use FaceTime. And I don't know if in, in, I'm kind of old, so Instagram Live. <laughs> You're carbon dating yourself. <laughs> yeah, Instagram, <laughs> Instagram Live or whatever, Zoom, Zoom and Skype and all these things that at least help you make the best of a bad situation. Um, so if we can talk about a little bit more about how um, we can safely kind of integrate technology in our lives as a medium to maintain the quality and and the, our, the friendships that we have with other people. I mean, it's just so important that, you know, again, pouring into others from hopefully you being, you know, having a full cup yourself. And, and you know, we sometimes we can overextend ourselves and we're not even doing well, on, you know, from our end. And so it's important that we take care of ourselves, that we nurture ourselves. And um, and once you are well, that you reach out to others and, and you feel um, that you make sure that you're still connected. So any friendships, you know, existing or new, um, I'm not sure how you'll make new friendships unless it's through, you know, social media platforms, but, um, you know, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to um, send a text. It's okay to utilize social media in a, in a positive way. Um, you know, even through LinkedIn, mm-hmm. even through, you know, if it, like you mentioned, Instagram or, or Twitter. For a lot of people, I think just having those sort of spaces and forums in place is allowing them to still feel connected. And um, for people that live alone, it's especially trying times, right? And so, yeah, if you do know that someone lives alone and, and they are limited because they're not able to fly and be with their family or travel, um, you know, it's okay to sort of send a letter in the mail. You know, I'm someone that supports just, you know, sending a quick text, just a check-in. How are you doing? You know, how, how's the day going? How's it unfolding for you? How's work? There's nothing wrong with that. And it's, and it's, it's certainly during this time, I'm sure it'll be appreciated. Right, right. But that also goes back to kind of the, in a sense, 
uh, I think this new term I learned, the loneliness uh, paradox, where, you know, the fact that we have these digital tools like social media uh, that should make us feel more socially connected in reality can, in some cases, increase um, people's um, experience with loneliness. So, and that got, kind of goes back to the digital divide in, on one hand, and then on the, on the other hand, maybe um, the quality of those connections through you know social media and stuff aren't mm-hmm. the best quality. And then we know that in terms of social isolation, as we discussed, a crucial indicator of social isolation um, is not only the, the frequency of contact, is also the quality of contact. Yeah. And if we place a lot of our value on our self-worth from social media and we know it can be a grueling world at times as we we've seen especially on things like twitter um maybe the more you grow your social uh, media networks the more lonely you feel because you feel more separated right but that's also difficult to even conceptualize because because loneliness is so subjective you know mm-hmm. one person might get like 200 likes on, likes on an instagram post and then that for them is enough for them not to feel lonely anymore. Do you know what I mean? Right. So yeah. for them, that's a very quality interaction within a social network. Whereas mm-hmm. for someone else, it might be a low dopamine high. And then they realize, why well, I don't actually know any of these people. Right. So right. like it's difficult also then we get into the like the different populations and the age, because we know that the literature shows that this whole more socially connected but still lonely affects mm-hmm. more of the younger population because they're more tapped mm-hmm. in. Whereas then we have the older adults where we're not, we may not be seeing that much because there's barriers to even accessing these social networks through either digital literacy or um, not even having that amount of social connections in the first place, not having the bandwidth to engage. So right. it's it's super complex. And like you said, it's a paradox. Like we need to get more connected at the time of COVID-19, but are we actually getting more lonely because of it? Is it this ruthless cycle that keeps perpetuating itself? Yeah, and I feel like as part of the quality of uh, social contact, um, definitely the physical element should be always considered because of the social beings we are, Um, especially for the elderly population who didn't grow up with these technological tools. So this needs to be addressed. And that's that's a good point too. And part of the great thing about public health and the perspective that um, practitioners can bring to the conversation is we have to recognize the unique needs of each population. Mm-hmm. And in the context of social isolation and loneliness, the interventions that we might come up for the younger generation that may or may not involve digital solutions or social media. On the other hand, you have seniors where we have to come up with interventions that fit their unique needs. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in, in this context, we talk about community-based interventions, which often I know in Windsor, where I work, there were there was a lot of kind of check-in and phone-based services that were developed as a result to kind of check in on seniors who live alone during the pandemic and see and connect them to, you know, meal services or, you know, transport services to bring them to essential doctor's appointments and stuff like that. And sometimes the best interventions don't have to be something that's new, right? Sometimes yep. it's... Um, using something that is very um, user friendly mm-hmm. for a population and kind of scaling it up and and um, um, having like a higher uptake on it. And who who knew something like phone calls and wellness checks would be so work so miraculously for seniors, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but in terms of the role the healthcare system has to play in um, 
in addressing um, loneliness because we know that people who self-report loneliness specifically um, tend to have a higher usage rate of, um, you know, maybe going to the, the hospital or ER and stuff like that. So um, what role can maybe a provider play in addressing loneliness and maybe how can public health specifically support healthcare practitioners with loneliness? Right. I think even before we go to that practitioner level, um, I think we'd be remiss if we don't mention um, what they're doing up in the UK. Right. So as you all may have known, they they actually had a, a position in place called the Minister of Loneliness. That's so cool. So, yeah. yeah. And w- what that really entailed, it, it entailed a bunch of things surrounding um, what we've been talking about and like understanding all the health implications. And as a result, they, they kind of uh, created a framework that's going to be implemented or it's currently being implemented. So one of those things is what I already touched on, which was having kind of a nationwide adoption of a way to measure loneliness. So they're actually using that UCLA scale that I was mentioning earlier. And even beyond this, they want to use that framework to improve and connect social services by using things like social prescribing. And I don't know if you guys are aware of what social prescribing is, but it's going beyond the fact that everything can be treated by medication. So um, maybe as a physician, if you notice that someone is um, feeling lonely or it has social isolation, you could prescribe uh, a ticket to um, a museum or movie tickets to you know get that social connection or even prescribe things um, to do with community services to get you more engaged in the community and playing make those bingo connections. and stuff like exactly that. playing bingo and stuff like that. And so I think having these frameworks and having commitment at these high levels of the government really goes a long way to you know reduce the stigma surrounding issues such as loneliness. And they, in, in the UK, they do have a lot of public health campaigns that raise awareness to reduce the stigma surrounding loneliness. That's great. Yeah, really innovative strategy. And I think it definitely will have to depend on the culture or the values of the society of the government. And I can imagine, for example, here, we do have something similar, I know in Alberta, um, but it's not mm. free. So somebody has to pay for it. Oh, and right. some things, for example, mm. they're prescriptions for a gym membership and the client can get like a week uh, going to a gym, mm. but then, you know, some people it's a cost. It's, it's difficult to afford. And mm. so like, it's interesting to see um, how different places around the world are responding. And I love what they're doing in the UK. Um, but I was curious and Maretta, maybe you could speak to this from your research too. In different places around the world, the way that isolation or loneliness is kind of treated is done differently and how older adults are cared for is done differently. And so we know in our North American context, we have a lot of long-term care homes um, and things Mm -hmm. like that. But I know in other cultures, that's not a thing. Like elderly live with the family. They wouldn't be on their own anyway. And I was wondering if you had seen in your research with international students, a difference depending on people's uh, cultural background. So if they're more from a more collective culture versus this North American culture that is a bit more individualist. Yeah, that's a great question, Linda. Yeah, I did learn through the research that, um, like you said, because there are some differences based off of culture, um, you know, uh, for the participants, many of them, this was their first time being in the U.S. and also being away from their loved ones. And for many of them, they lived within a home, you know, that included their parents, 
um, their husbands for some of the women and um, their children, um, cousins, aunts. Yeah. And so absolutely that was, you know, being away from that many family members and loved ones was certainly, I would say, a bit more impactful and impacted them in different ways. And so, um, you know, it not only affected their feelings of loneliness and, and the lack of the social connection, but it had impact on their um in addition to what academics can bring with it in general in graduate school, you know, the rigor and all of those things that come along with, you know, or that bring about stress, they also had, you know, coupled with that were these feelings of just being away from that many family members and loved ones that they had to also deal with. So, yeah, we, we do have to consider, you know, the the cultural piece to this and, and how different cultures um, understand loneliness and social isolation. And so, you know, that's why it's going to be so important that, you know, social services providers, um, you know, and community-based mental health professionals, you know, really are dedicated to working collaboratively to address this issue. So, you know, we have to always remember that, you know, home or um, community-based services can bring with it, you know, a set of challenges that, um, you know, clinic-based treatments such as different scopes of care may bring with it. You know, so we just have to always be cognizant of these differences and how culture plays a part, like you mentioned, different demographics. And of course, you know, this is why um, understanding how compounding issues such as, you know, transportation, um, living standards, you know, where you live mm -hmm. in relative to any services that may be in place. Um, if they're not free of charge, if where are you going to allocate your funds? Are you going to say, I'm going to dedicate the funds that I do have to the actual services or getting to, you know, if it requires transportation, right. what am I going to, you know, what am I going to dedicate my funds to, which, which is more important, you know, obviously it's getting to the services, but it, it may not happen for some people, you know? And so we have to always consider, you know, all the sort of moving pieces that, that are important. And so, you know, again, it's going to just take a collaborative approach to really uh, bring forth change. I think to tie it up nicely, with the role of healthcare in addressing loneliness is to kind of provide that uh, patient-centered approach to a problem that can be unique from person to person, whereas, you know, public health is trying to understand how people experience loneliness at the population level. So, you know, things like environmental factors, you know, I know Will loves um, sustainable cities, <laughs> how cities are designed, yeah. built, built environments, right? Yeah. And, I, and I, I have read that does have an yeah. impact on how people perceived um, their relationships and communities and stuff like that. So loneliness and social isolation is a very complex issue, and we can probably speak about it for hours. But we want to thank you, Dr. Moretta Germaya, and we want to thank you for coming on for discussing this incredible topic and would like to give you an opportunity for, for any last words, anything you maybe wanted to say but didn't get a chance to say. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed my time with you all and, and learning from you and sharing perspective where I can. And, you know, I'm... I'm hopeful and optimistic that um, all that we've been dealing with will bring forth positive change, um, highlighting issues that might have been overlooked before. Um, so thank you for having me. I enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you for joining thank us. You for joining. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.